Hey guys, welcome to episode 106 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to do a few things before we start this episode. And one of them is to thank everyone who gave us all of those reviews over the past two weeks. We've had this like surge of reviews and we just want to say thank you so much because that helps us with, you know, getting the word out about the podcast and also, you know, bumping us up in those rankings. So we do appreciate that so much. And your words are just, they're so nice. And that's kind of, you know, what keeps us going and keeps us doing this is, is the audience. And we love you guys. So we're so glad that you love us too. Absolutely. You couldn't have said it better. I love driving into work at like four o'clock in the morning and reading all of them. It's great. Yes. And then like we said before, we read them over dinner. <laughs> that too. Even the bad ones. Well, what I like to do is I cheat. I read them beforehand, but sometimes I don't tell. Okay. Well, he'll brace me. He'll be like, <laughs> I'm going to read this. It's There's a few that aren't, aren't the best. So like the good yeah. ones will come first. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that is what I do. I, I sometimes I like I peek, you know, and I'm like, oh, we got some new ones. Yeah. And I read like one or two and then I, I wait for Kay for later. But yeah. And another thing we want to do, like always, is thank our, our new uh, supporters on Patreon. And we'll give you a list of those new names at the end of this episode, like we always do, because we appreciate your support at all levels that you're giving it to us. And the third thing is yesterday, because I've been sick for the past two weeks, the end of the school year kind of like really did me in. And we're recording the episode that we're releasing today on the same day so it's kind of like you're with us the same day you're hearing this <laughs> talk about last minute yeah <laughs> um but i felt like my voice was finally ready just now to do the podcast and yesterday was our five-year anniversary of true crime couple i can't even believe that we've been doing it for five years no it does seem a little surreal like the beginning it was a little wonky and we're so glad you stuck with us through it but five years it seems like just we just started the podcast. That's yeah, how with, I feel. With one microphone on our dining room table. Yeah, we would take turns leaning in. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was the really bad. The reverb was horrific. But thank you so much for sticking with us. And for our new listeners, we're so excited for you to listen to our old episodes. And we do apologize in advance for the sound quality. We've we've upped our game slightly since then. We have. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. In September of 1998, several complaints were made in Redlands, California regarding the sewer system. There were backups in several homes and reports of foul smell on the streets of Hibiscus Drive and Gardenia Avenue. The town sent out workers from their DPW. The manhole covers were lifted outside of the homes on those streets, especially outside of the home where the initial complaint was first made. This was something that was common among sewer systems. To fix it, any buildup of debris would be pulled out by the team as they were raking up what they thought would be some of the common causes of the backup of a sewer system, like hair, tree roots, cooking grease. This is also disgusting. Flushable wipes. Yeah. Well, thank you. Is that your PSA? Yeah, don't flush your flushable wipes. They say flushable. Well, John, what are you supposed to do with them? I, I know. It sounds I disgusting, but... better to not use them, I feel. No, honestly, I've been told this, that if you use flushable wipes, even though they say they degrade, they don't. They cause like a massive wad. Almost like if you were to like chew gum. Like it's just like this wad of um, 
all the bad stuff. This is like your new job, like your new PSA about flushable well, wipes. Well, I'm just I'm just saying that Cottonelle will not be <laughs> sponsoring this podcast anytime I'm just saying, soon. Listen, you know me, you know me well. I always have these weird facts, and I it's true. I kind of like knowing them, so don't flush your toilet wipes. Okay. <laughs> well, they were thinking that that was what they were going to pull up: grease, flushable toilet wipes, um, and you know, hair, tree roots, any of that gross stuff. But they pulled up something different, part of a human skull. So workers stopped immediately and they called the Redlands Police Department. It took the police hours and the uncovering of all of the manholes that were interconnected for one mile to find the entire human skeleton. It was clear that the person had been young, a child of 13 to 15 years old by the size of the bones. No one was saying it, but everyone was thinking it. This seemed to be ripped from the pages of Stephen King's It. And really, who would have done something like this, besides a monster like that? Although it was not a fictional, child-murdering monster that committed the crimes we're going to talk about today, the theme from Stephen King's story can still be applied to this case. That lurking beneath the idyllic facade of an American town, something more sinister hides. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Redlands, California is located in Southern California's San Bernardino County. It has a rich history that tells the story of most American towns. Stories of Native American conquest due to European settlement, in this case the Spanish, and bitter land disputes afterwards. The Mexican government gained control of what is now the current county after the Mexican War of Independence. But the land that Redlands is home to is interesting in that Mormon pioneers began to settle there in 1842. There they prospered in farming due to the many lakes and streams provided to the area by the San Bernardino Mountains. The Mormons had to leave the land and return to Utah due to clashes that their leader, Brigham Young, was having with the federal government of the United States. They sold most of their land to a man interested in purchasing the area to build an extensive winery. So he was going to plant vineyards, which he did. 1,000 acres of vineyards. And then came way to another great American pastime, the railroad, which was built in the beginning of 1888. However, the San Bernardino region was not connected to Los Angeles until 1914. It was when the railroads were first built that parts of the winery were sold to make way for the newest interest in Southern California farming, citrus. But here's a true crime fact for you, and it's, it's a sad one. We're bringing up a bad memory here. The parts that we're talking about, like the thousand acres of vineyards, some of the vineyards were kept vineyards to make wine, and that made up what was known as Wineville, California. And that should sound familiar to true crime couple listeners because it's one of the most gruesome crimes we ever covered. The chicken coop murders that occurred in Wineville, 
or what is now Mira Loma, which is very, very close to Redlands. So whereas Redlands was turned into the citrus farm, Mira Loma, or what was Wineville, was still the vineyards, and that's where the horrific crimes of the chicken coop murders took place. That one still sticks with me. I know sometimes we talk to listeners and they recall the, that case, and it, it that's a hard one. So I just thought that would be interesting to throw that in there. This case is very close to where the other case took place, but obviously so many years later. That's really interesting, actually. I knew you were going to say that. I mean, I think it's just because we were talking about California. And but, San Bernardino. Yes, but I I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, ugh, that case always ugh, Oh, my God, you. yeah. I mean, that was that was pretty brutal. Yeah. But whereas Wineville kept their vineyards, orange groves made up most of the town of Redlands, like I said. And for 75 years, the town was the top producing area of Southern California, which really was the largest naval orange producing region in the world. So it was Redlands was really important to the economy of Southern California. And this made the town very rich, including many of its residents. But like all American towns, there was a bust to the boom. The citrus industry died down, taking with it the groves. In their places were built subdivisions, the very subdivisions in which the body of a teenager was found in 1998. Now, Redlands was still considered an upper-middle-class town, located directly between L.A. and Palm Springs, and only miles from the Joshua Tree National Forest. Its residences clung to their old money status of the vineyards and the orange grove owners. But mostly its residents now worked at the industries in town, like the Air Force Base, the school, or the nearby hospital. It had all of the makings of an American town, from its past all the way to its present, which is exactly why no one believed that when Tristan Jensen went missing in August of 1998, that he didn't just run away from home, because nothing truly awful ever happens in Redlands, California. But unfortunately, that day in September, the community would learn that that was far from the truth. Tristan's aunt, who he was living with when he went missing, said that she was driving in her car when she heard over the radio that the remains of a teenager were found in the sewer system in Redlands. She recalled in later interviews knowing that in her gut that the person that was found was her nephew. His disappearance had broken her heart as it was just another in a long line of tragedies that their family had to deal with. Ever since Tristan was first born, his father was in and out of prison. And because of this, his mother relied on her mother and sister to help raise her son. But when Tristan was eight years old, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And for four years, she fought hard for her life. Her sister said that it was very hard for her nephew and herself to watch his beautiful mother and her beautiful sister go through everything that she had to go through in those four years. After Tristan's mother lost her battle with cancer, he went to live with his grandmother. And um, his grandmother and his aunt actually lived next door to each other. And around the age of 13, he he's really close with his cousins. So he actually moves in with his aunt and not his grandmother, because it's become a little hard for her to take care of a teenage boy. So the aunt was better equipped, so he moved over next door 
when he was 13. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and like sometimes like, uh, you know, like they say, uh, sometimes it takes a village, you know, it's like, it's, it's sad his situation, but at least he has the rest of his family to kind of like pick up the pieces, you know? Yeah. It is really nice that they had a, you know, a big support system and they were able to come in and, you know, take over for her. And I'm glad that she, you know, passed away knowing that her sister and her mother would be there for her son. That must have been of some comfort. Of course. So the same day the remains were found, the police department visited Tristan's grandmother and aunt. They let them know that they were able to find a piece of jawbone on the ledge just beneath one of the manhole coverings, and they believed that it was the jaw of a young teenager. Once the rest of the skeleton was found, they were able to determine that it belonged to a male. The remains had been brought to a county coroner for further analysis. And even though Tristan only went missing six and a half weeks ago, it was possible that these were his remains. Because at first, the family was thinking, well, Tristan didn't go missing long enough ago for his body to be only skeletal remains. It's only been six and a half weeks. But what law enforcement told the family was that the sewer gases and all the corrosive acids that are created when cleaners are washed away, they could all quickly accelerate decomposition. So it was entirely possible that that was the remains of Tristan. I mean, yeah, what they're saying, you know, makes sense. I mean, it it can accelerate uh, decomp. So, yeah. But in order to match the remains to Tristan, they would need something of his to compare it to. They would need a DNA sample. So Tristan had been reported missing by his aunt when he did not return home after a trip to the local skating park to try out his new skateboard. Before he had left, he had gotten into a brief argument with his grandmother over the fact that he hadn't cleaned his room yet. But in reality, Tristan did not seem too bothered by this because he casually said goodbye to his cousin before he left. And because of this, they had assured the police that Tristan did not leave in anger. Like, at first they thought, okay, could he have, you know, gotten into a fight with his family, left, ran away because he was frustrated. But he wasn't angry. It was just kind of like one of those things, like, when are you going to clean your room? Your aunt really needs you to do this. You know, right. a typical teenage yeah. thing. <laughs> Nothing that was like this big argument. Well, that had been at noon. So when he didn't return for dinner the family called all of Tristan's friends, but none of them had heard from him. They waited until the next morning, and Tristan still had not come home. He also had not called, nor had any of his friends heard from him, so the family chose to call the police. Ever since that moment, Tristan's aunt and grandmother felt as if the officers and detectives that were working on Tristan's case really did help them. They worked hard to find him, and to reassure them that Tristan knew that they loved him. So at that moment, the family knew that they had to help the detectives. They needed to find Tristan's DNA. But that wasn't going to be easy. He had gone missing six and a half weeks prior, and to prepare everything for his long-awaited return, his aunt and grandmother had cleaned his room, washed all of his clothes, and cleaned the bathroom that he used. All traces of him were gone. They even washed the baseball caps that he loved to wear so much. So they searched the house looking for anything that they could find. 
but even his toothbrush had been thrown away and all the hairbrushes cleaned out. They threw away his toothbrush? Well, it, it, they said that his cousin probably just like tossed it away while he was cleaning up the bathroom. Like it wasn't done like maliciously. Okay. But it's as of right now, they're kind of struggling to find some DNA, which is really important to identify this body because they can't just identify it on site. Okay. I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm not going to put it. It's not a red flag, but I, I do want to put like a little, a little marker on that. Okay. Just because not a red flag yet, but not something of just interest, just like a, like a little bookmark on this, because what's what I'm thinking like, okay, like if, if you or I went missing, yeah, either of our parents would not clean our entire room. Almost like we weren't there anymore. The toothbrush, yeah. the brush, whatever, everything that we have is just kind of like cleaned up. And I mean, I know for a fact, my, yeah, my mom would have cleaned up my room, but it, my, I would have still had like my stuff where I left it. You know what I mean? Yeah. To a certain point. I don't know. Like a clean sweep is a little bizarre to me. It is a little interesting, but I mean, I guess you can say like if it if a toothbrush is thrown out, even accidentally, and there's no hair left on the hairbrush. What DNA would be there? Right. Now, is that intentional? We don't know yet. Yeah. I'm just saying, though, like, to clean the hair out of the brush or or get rid of the brush completely and then not have a toothbrush. If if one of us did that or something like that, I, my mom would have went out and got me another toothbrush before I even got home. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I'm just saying. No. Well, they had a new toothbrush there for him, but they just threw out the old one. The old one has the DNA. That's what's important. Yeah, okay. I don't want to get sidetracked. Let's just put a bookmark on the fact that everything got wiped up, <laughs> and it that I it's a little weird. Okay. All right, John. I know that you had an indicator, but I have some good news for you. Okay, please tell me. Tristan's grandmother finally remembered something as they were, like, kind of scouring the house for his DNA. Shortly after Tristan came to live with her, just after his mother had passed away, he lost his last baby tooth. The moment had struck a chord with her, like it was something special, something that she wished her daughter could have been there for. And because it was something special, she didn't want to just, you know, throw the tooth away. So something had told her to like wrap it up and put it in her jewelry box. And she remembered she had his baby tooth. Okay. That's good. All right, right? all right. So we're good now then because, you know, I you feel better. Yeah, I feel better. You know, like <laughs> grandma and everyone didn't like hide evidence here. So, OK, I'm good now. So that was the DNA that they could offer police. The coroner was able to drill a hole into the tooth and extract some DNA. Eventually, that was compared to the remains that had been found in the sewer system. And the police found that it was a match. Tristan Jensen's disappearance just turned into a murder investigation. Now, like I said, when we were first talking about the discovery of the body, the town was freaked out because this legitimately sounded like it was ripped from the pages of it. But that's impossible. Obviously, if you don't work in city planning, sewage, or the DPW, you really wouldn't know all of this. But a town sewer system and drainage system are two very different things. So a drain, like the one made so famous by Mr. King, led to a drainage system, which helps alleviate the town of rainwater buildup. 
but it has nothing to do with the sewer system. Okay. Therefore, Tristan was not forced down a storm drain. Rather, he was put into the sewer system. Now, a body, even if it's broken up into smaller parts, in no way could ever be flushed down any type of household drain. Therefore, he must have been placed into the sewer system, and the only other way to do that is through a manhole cover. Okay, so someone must have opened up a manhole cover and put the body down the manhole. Correct. So the detectives theorized that Tristan's body had been thrown into the manhole in which his jawbone was found. They thought this was the case because of the way the jawbone was lying on the ledge so close to the top of the manhole. The water and the sewage never would have swelled that high, so it had to have broken off when it was pushed down. So they planned on canvassing that entire area in which the body, you know, the the jawbone was found because they felt like, okay, this is the original manhole cover that the body was put in. It was obviously forced through the sewer system about a mile in length. That's where the body was found. So parts of his body did get very far, but this is where the killer, whoever it is, initially put his body into the manhole. So they said, let's canvas the area and question all of the neighbors around the original manhole, see if they've noticed anything weird happening. So you're saying when they lift the manhole up, there's a ledge with inside once you peel that cover back. Yes. And I, and I know that because I've pulled them up before. So you're saying that the the jawbone was resting on that little ledge? Yes. When you open the cover up? Yes. So would that mean that the body would have had to already be in like a skeletal form? Like, like, like it's bones at this point? I know. I think that's a really good question. You know, right? Because if it was a full... Like if you just killed somebody... Even if you waited a day or two or three, I'm sure that body would still be somewhat intact. So if you open up a manhole cover and throw the body down, regardless if it's head first or legs first, what are, what are the odds that that one jawbone, jawbone is just going to land on that ledge? I completely agree with you. And I think this is something that the police were just theorizing because you're right. The only reason why Tristan's remains were just bones at this point was because he had been in the sewer system so what could have been the state of his body that when he was thrown down his jawbone was able to just stay on a ledge it is very interesting it's just weird that that part that bone out of his whole body is up there and i think that is interesting because now you're asking the question had he been dismembered or yeah, was his I, jaw broken? Or was his jaw broken? I don't know. These are good questions. These are good questions. <laughs> <laughs> so they were in luck. The first person that they spoke to had seen something interesting about a week prior to the body's discovery. The person who saw something was 15-year-old J.P. Remsen. Um, and his name, it was John Proctor, was what J.P. stands for. And he lived in the house whose backyard face the manhole cover. He said that he had seen a dark, he thought maybe like dark red, 70s or 80s style van parked by the manhole. 
and that a group of Hispanic males got out, put something in the sewer, covered the hole back up, and left. When they asked JP if he knew Tristan, he said that they went to the same school, but the two had never talked. Now, this is something that's entirely possible because the area of Redlands, California is pretty big, and there are actually, and I'm not sure where the cutoff of these high schools are, but there's four high schools in the area, and each of the high schools has like 2,500 students. So, I mean, if you go to a high school where there's 2,500 students, it is totally possible that you're going to school with someone that you might not know. Right. And also, could just hang out with different crowds, have different teachers, not be in the same class. Exactly. So other members of the community surrounding the manhole were also questioned, but they also had some tales to tell. When they were asked if they had seen anything suspicious surrounding the manhole, they had said that they hadn't seen anything. Then the police told the neighbors that a boy in the neighborhood, JP, had seen a dark van pull up to the manhole. And they wanted to know if they themselves had ever seen a dark van of any kind within the neighborhood that they didn't know that to be familiar. So they all said they couldn't recall seeing an older model dark van anywhere near the area. But they all did sure have a lot to say about JP. They said that JP Remsen was an interesting boy. He was known to be a bit of a bully around town, a real troubled child. They said that actually they had seen JP put fireworks down the manhole cover. And one neighbor even mentioned a bizarre incident with the boy using fireworks to terrorize a neighborhood cat. Hmm. These are all pretty interesting. Yeah. Is this red flag worthy? It's too early. Okay. I, it's see this is the thing I don't want to say it because I, I I you know I'll say it I'm putting I'm putting a bookmark a bookmark not a red flag okay. this is a book this is bookmark worthy not a red flag worthy red flag is like I like dude this guy's something's up okay this is this is a bookmark so this of course is something that investigators found very interesting and they made a note of this uh, they definitely wanted to talk to JP and his family again which makes sense. They want to cover all of their bases. But in the meantime, they hope to find clues as to why this would have happened to Tristan. With the family's permission, they took all of his belongings, including his school bags, notebooks, and binders. They hope to find some clues. Oh my God. If you would have taken my 13-year-old binders, you would have found like my embarrassing poetry that I used Okay, to wait. Have. They would have wait. been like, this girl's nuts. I need to tell everybody right now. So as she's reading that, literally right now, I could see this big smile on her face <laughs> and she was about to laugh. And I'm looking at her right now, guys. And I'm like, why is she like ready to laugh? As it was like it was coming. Like she thought about it as she was reading that. She thought about her poetry and was going <laughs> to laugh. So that's pretty funny. Um, Yeah, mine was pretty bad. I was so disorganized. Yeah. Well, Tristan was probably cooler than we were. So yeah. he had better things than my weird quotes that I would put all over my notebook. I just had my Jansport backpack and... Uh, you were low-key. I was low-key, yeah. You had the papers all the way at the bottom. That, that like, I didn't up do. The whole no, thing. no, no, no. I didn't okay. do that. I was the one that put 
no matter what class it was, I'd put all the same papers in the same binder. Oh my god, I hate you. <laughs> so, I mean, there wasn't mess inside the backpack, but yes, it w- as soon as you open up that folder or binder, oh, oh, <laughs> oh we're screwed. Yeah. All of my, from middle school to college, like all of my classes are color coordinated. Everything had its own highlighter <laughs> and pen. But that explains you. Like that yeah. is, to this day, that's, that yeah. is you. So, makes sense. So the police having all of this stuff, they really hope to find some clues. And it really does indicate a lot about, you know, a high schooler. The notes that they have, the notes they write, you know, their friends. You could find out a lot by having some of your school stuff. So they also questioned all of his friends, family, and the school employees that knew him. Everyone really had the same things to say. Tristan was very nice and popular. Everyone who knew him loved him. And again, with the permission of his family, Tristan's school records were given to the police. Everything appeared to be normal. There was just one piece of interesting information that they found. J.P. Remsen was lying. He did know Tristan Jensen. There were school records that indicated that the two had a brief altercation months before Tristan's disappearance. Okay. That's, see, now that's red flag. Why are you lying about your affiliation? Yeah. Right? He knows him. He knows him. Well, I think there's actually, like, so many red flags here, right? He's the only one who saw this van that a group of Hispanic males jumped out of and put someone in a manhole. It's a great, uh, it's a, the the normal uh, cover story, so to speak. Uh, you saw a bunch of people. I also want to point out, which we did not even mention yet, the fact that a manhole cover is like 250 pounds. Just want to point that out. Yeah, it's, it's hard to open. It's heavy. Like, when I was out doing that stuff, it was difficult. It's not easy to pull up a manhole. Well, I'm going to mention something to you about the appearance of J.P. Remsen. Okay. Although he's 15 years old, he is six feet tall and weighs 270 pounds. All right. So he's a big dude. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, look, if you have... A big dude at 15. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, if you have like a crowbar or some sort of bar, some some way to like kind of pry it up a little bit, it does make it easier totally. But yeah, I mean, you have to be in good, uh, I would say good physical health to... You have to have strength. Yeah, you have to be strong. Yeah. And... I don't know. I just think that lying about having the argument with him, a lot of, there's a lot of things, you know, this kid is definitely a suspect if we've ever seen one. Yeah. I've already pieced this whole thing together already. But he's also just a 15 year old boy as well. That is true. Well, you finished it. You, you want to just end it? No, no, (laughs) no, we can't. But I, I think I got it. Okay. I think I got it. I, I'm, I'm putting together this guy's profile. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm not a professional, but um, I... You're close to it. Yeah. Five years. Yeah. No, this is, uh, this is good. I, I like where this is going. So when the investigators go to talk to JP and his family, they first notice a large bag of knives and other various tools that are laid on the porch to the left of the door. When they knock on the door, it was answered by JP's father. His name is also John. They ask him a few questions about possibly seeing anyone near manhole covers, And he said that he had not. They asked if they could speak with JP again, and he told them that his son was not home yet, but they were welcome to come back later. He asked, though, what they wanted to speak to his son about. And when they told him that they wanted to discuss him throwing fireworks into the manhole cover, he laughed about it 
kind of like a boys will be boys kind of thing. And he told them to just come back later. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So the investigators did go back to the Remsen house later that day. Now, the officers that were canvassing were the ones who spoke to JP and obviously took down his report. So the detectives themselves really had not seen JP. So they were quite shocked when they saw his appearance, right? They're expecting this 15-year-old boy and out walks this six-foot-tall, 270-pound kid. So they were kind of like taken aback a little bit. And they asked JP again if he knew Tristan. And again, he lied and said he did not. They asked him about the van he had seen by the manhole cover and whether or not he had been out there. He told them about the van again, and he did admit to messing around there once or twice, but that it had been a long time since he had done that. The investigators had a strange feeling about the family. On the outside, they seemed perfectly fine. They had a large home. John, J.P.'s father, was a banker, and his mother, Susan, was a nurse at the local hospital. But there seemed to be something off. So they decided to talk to the neighbors about the family. And no one talks like neighbors in the suburbs. You would be very surprised what your neighbors know about you. It's, it's really true. It is true. They said that John was not the kind of person that they ever messed with. Because he had fireworks in his garage. A lot of them. He actually made them in his garage. The police department heard enough. They needed to find out more about the Remsen family. So two warrants were obtained for the family. One for the fireworks and the other for the homicide investigation. Both warrants were served and carried out simultaneously. Immediately upon entry into the home, blood was found on the walls near the staircase. There were numerous bloodstained patterns throughout the house. The detectives were ready to start processing all of the evidence taking samples and pictures until they were forced out of the house. The, the police were forced out of the house? Yes. Um, let me guess, the father. The detectives that were serving the other warrant, the fireworks one, had to immediately stop their search because of what they found. Large amounts of nitroglycerin. Oh. And other very unstable accelerants. Okay, never mind. Yeah, that could whole burn the whole neighborhood down. Yes. <laughs> A lot of things were on the line here. Not only was there a potential of blowing up the house, but they could also destroy all of the evidence that they had against this family. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. And they could also blow up a few blocks. Yeah. It was a 100%. lot of explosives. Wow. Why would you even have that? <laughs> hey. So everyone within a five-block radius had to be evacuated from their homes. The garage full of explosives had to next be carefully contained. That is actually crazy. I mean, it's one thing to have fireworks, and even that can sometimes be dangerous if not handled properly. But to have nitroglycerin in your house? Yeah. Why? It's a very interesting one. It is. Yeah. It, is you know, it, must, it must be the father's hobby. Yeah. It's got to be. Well, it's an extremely dangerous hobby. Your family could die. Well, 100%. I mean, there's no, argue, there's no argument there. I'm just saying it's weird that that's what he's doing in his, you know, in, on his property. I completely agree with you. 
So in order to like contain some of these explosions, pits were dug in the front yard of the property, like using a backhoe, right? Is that a backhoe? Yeah, you're right. All right, good. And they kind of did these contained explosions. Oh, so they were detonating them. Yes. Okay. Because they were so unstable. Okay, so they were forced detonating them in the ground. Yeah. While the digging was taking place, crime scene analysts were trying to remove the door that led into the garage, the door and the door frame. But this is also really dangerous because, you know, to cut a door and a door frame off takes a lot and they didn't want to spark anything within the garage. But the door and the door frame had a very large amount of blood on it. So they wanted to preserve it as evidence. And if the house blew up, they wanted to have the evidence. I mean, you got to do what you have to do, right? I, I mean, this is a, scary. Yeah, this is a really weird um, like situation. Imagine you're obtaining these warrants and then you run into like problems like this. Yeah. Well, they worked slowly to take everything out of the garage that could explode and what was too unsteady or crystallized out into the front yard. When the garage was cleared, they resumed the search of the inside of the house. But the investigation again had to be halted when in the refrigerator they found Kennepak, which are plastic tubes that are filled with ammonium nitrate, which is also known as dynamite. You gotta be kidding me. No. In their in their refrigerator. Of their actual house. Yes. Not like a secondary refrigerator. No. Okay. So for this, the LA bomb squad had to be called in. And another evacuation had to take place. This is crazy. Yeah. Um, and this was a little bit different. Um, they didn't do the explosives in the front yard because of the dynamite. So the bomb squad got called out. They and they were able to put the. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right, but the. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it correctly, but the Kennepak, they like were able to put it in. You know, the boxes that the bomb squad has, and then they were able to detonate it. Yeah, it's like a big pot, and they throw it in, and they detonate it. Yeah. Yeah, it could withstand the blast. Correct. That's uh, what they do. Yep, so that's what they had to do. Isn't that... This is is the craziest murder investigation I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it is I don't want to cut you off. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I don't want to cut you off. All right, then I guess I'll just say that I think it's actually (laughs) crazy that this family has... This many like explosive devices. I mean, this isn't like this is more than fireworks. This is yeah. these are like. I mean, I guess I could say it's it. They're freaking bombs. I think it's also terrifying to think like, okay, your neighbor could have this in your garage, and if anything bad happens, like if a fire started in that garage or in that house, with everyone within a five block radius would have been on fire. Babe, you wouldn't worry. Be worrying about fire. Your roof would be gone. Your whole no, house well, would be I know. knocked down. Like, it, you're going to worry about the explosion, not the fire. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Like, you're everyone's going to be, like, destroyed. Oh, yeah. That's you'll crazy. Wake, you'll wake up and, like, you know, your whole roof will be gone. That's nice. Maybe the whole house. You never know. Like, that's scary. You don't know what your neighbors have in their no, freaking garage. You don't. Um, And another thing that's really interesting about this is that I think it l- leads us into who J.P. Remsen is as a person, meaning the kid. They were saying that he was throwing fireworks down into the manhole. Okay, this makes sense now. It does. But it also shows you that his 
home life is. Oh, I'm gonna make a really cool simile here. Okay. His home life may be as explosive as his actual home. <laughs> you like that? Yeah, I do. That was good. But that could lead to like they said they called him like a bully. But I mean, maybe this is a result of his home life. Okay. You know, interesting dynamics here in this family. They were presenting this one image of themselves, whereas there's something a little bit weird and sinister happening within the the walls of their house. One hundred percent. Is it um? Is it too early for me to just to put my theory out there? Not the full theory, just a partial theory. Okay, you know what? You go for it. Okay, just want to get it out there because I probably will screw it up down down the road, and I don't want to do that. Remember how we were trying to figure out how a jawbone can get on a ledge? Okay. Okay. Probably has something to do with the explosives that he's dropping down there, which would make me think that did this guy, did this kid put explosives oh my God, in the body and throw it down a and throw it down a manhole? Well, I mean, I that is a crazy theory, and I see where you're going with it, but I will. Tell you and the audience that that did not take place. Damn it. All right. All right. I'm done with no, theories. But, no, but that's a good... No, it's a good... We actually, and I'll tell you right now, have no clue how that happened. Okay. But it, I will say, if the, like, let's... I don't want to give too much away. Okay. Uh, that was my theory. Okay, but we'll... Okay, we'll put a bookmark on your theory. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's destroyed. No, it's I gotta, not. I, gotta, I can't keep doing it. All right, no more. No, it was good. <laughs> Okay, so on that day, October 23rd, 1998, over 1,000 pounds of explosives were found. I mean, that's enough to like blow up the neighborhood, literally. Yeah. Because of this, because the explosives were found, John and Susan Remsen were arrested for having illegal explosive devices and they had automatic weapons, illegal weapons in their home and child endangerment. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, wh- why? Like, I, like, automatic weapons, too? Like, this is actually insane. Yeah. I mean, are they trying to start, like, a revolution or something? I don't, I don't know what they're doing. After his parents were arrested, the police wanted to talk to JP. They had found a trail of blood leading from the mid-level of the house. There were three levels. It was a tri-level house. And then downstairs, through the bottom of the house, the main level, leading into the garage. In the garage itself, along with the explosives, they found a large dried pool of blood beneath a carpet. And it looked like a very large amount of blood, like someone had been beaten or stabbed there. But what I think is so bizarre here is that nothing was cleaned up. There was blood all along like the like the bottom wall of the staircase, like where the stairs kind of like meet the wall. There was blood all along there. There was blood like leading into the garage all over the door and the door frame that led from the house into the garage and then a pool of it on the floor of the garage. Tristan had been missing for six and a half weeks. Nothing was cleaned up. How did the parents see now this it, it brings up other questions like, OK, how are the parents not alerted to this? How do they not see blood in their home? I, that yeah. is a little weird to me, but I guess it's not because if you have TNT and and automatic rifles in your house or whatever that they were, 
um, and, and to what capacity. But like, if you have all those things there, you're not. I mean, I don't think you care about anything. I mean, it's just weird to me. Like, I'm I'm not the saying anything about yeah. I'm not like I'm not saying anything about guns, whatever. However, anyone feels about that. But I'm just trying to make a connection where these parents must not care. I mean, look what they're doing. Their kid can go in the house and grab nitroglycerin if he wanted to, and go out and put it in the street and, and blow it seemed up. Seemed like he did play with it because not only did he put it in manholes, but he was torturing cats with it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of. It's bizarre from the parents' side too. Not like right. you should really be like, "Hey, uh, don't touch that." Or, I probably shouldn't have it, but don't go in there. You know? Or like, why Something. is there a massive pool of blood in my yeah. garage? Why are there smears of blood everywhere? Like, I don't understand. Weird. Like, how, seriously though, how can you, as a parent, think that nothing's going on? So they went to the high school and asked JP if he would like to come to the police station and talk to them because at this point he has no idea about what's happening at home. Oh, okay. He agreed to do so. So at first, during their interrogation with him, he was sticking to the same story that he had told the police so many times before. He denied having any involvement or knowledge in what happened to Tristan. He said that he did not mention the fight between the two boys because he didn't want to look like a suspect. But he said, just because I don't like him doesn't mean I want him dead. I couldn't. I would feel bad for his family, he said. I could never kill someone in cold blood, he kept repeating. But after hours of questioning and the police laying out the information that they had against him, or just asking where all that blood came from, J.P. caved. He told the investigators that Tristan had been at his house the day that he went missing. J.P. collected knives, and he had a lot of them. He said that Tristan picked up one of his knives and asked if he could buy it from him. He told him no, and because of that, the two boys got into another altercation. While they were scuffling, Tristan, with a knife in his hand, toppled down the staircase and stabbed himself. So that's his story. Mm Mm-hmm. Likely story. Police obviously did not find this plausible. Um, They said, you know, if that really happened, if this was all so accidental and he was your friend, he was over your house. And that's like just a little side note here is I do find it very strange that the two boys did get into an altercation at school. But then Tristan is at his house. I would feel very uncomfortable to be at this boy's house, especially if he's so much bigger than I am. But the police were saying if that would have happened and and Tristan fell down the stairs and it was all an accident, you really would have called 911, right? So tell us what really happened. So after another two hours of interrogation, he admitted that he stabbed Tristan twice in the chest during an argument that the two had with his knives. Tristan had asked him if he could buy a knife that was known as an Arkansas toothpick. It is a really broad blade that gets very thin and sharp at the top. And it's rather large. It's 18 inches from the handle to the tip. So JP admitted that he stabbed Tristan once through the chest and the blade came out of the other side of the 14-year-old boy's body. He pulled the knife out. And then when the boy fell to his knees, he stabbed him again, which then caused him to fall down the stairs. 
and the blood spatter to get on the walls of the staircase. Now that makes sense. Yeah. The like where they fo- found the blood on on the staircase and the wall that connects to that staircase. Now that all makes sense now. No, I I do agree with you. Now, there's a few things here with this interrogation that I do want to bring up. I would say if what happens later, what I'm about to explain to you, didn't take place, I would say the police are taking advantage a little bit of what he did to Tristan was absolutely horrific. Tristan is the victim here. But I don't want to ignore the fact that there you have a 15-year-old boy that you are interrogating because his parents have been arrested. So he has no way to have any guidance from his parents. He's a minor. So they're taking advantage of this situation slightly, I will say. Okay. And to interrogate him for so many hours is is kind of crazy. It was a seven-hour interrogation. So what, like, do you think that also maybe they... I think that, you know, false confessions we know are something that that happen, especially with children who have lower IQs and have no parents there stopping it from taking place. Now, that's what I would say in like a normal situation where like maybe JP would go back and say, no, what I said originally really did happen. Like it was an accident and he fell down the stairs. But JP Remsen doesn't do that here. I just wanted to bring up the fact that, like, they were kind of taking advantage of this their situation yeah, slightly. Totally. No, totally. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, and there is no parent at the moment that could help him or guide him or tell him not to speak or whatever or lawyer up or whatever. Yeah. There's nothing. So, And I don't think he yeah. knew any better. And I agree with either. you. Either. I think that he is definitely, though, a cold-hearted killer because he never retracts any statements that were given he was asked by the police to walk through the crime scene because I think the police knew we're going to have problems down the road with this interrogation, right? Um, maybe he was coerced. Maybe this is a false confession. Maybe we did this for too long. There was no way that he could have, um, even if he asked for one of his parents, they were both incarcerated at the time, so. Right there, they don't want any sort of loophole for him to get out of what he's being charged or what he could be charged with. What he's claiming happened. Right. So they say, bring us back to the house and walk us through what happened. Okay. And this whole reenactment that J.P. Remsen does is videotaped, and you can see him with a serious lack of emotion explain the fight that the two boys got into that day. He explained that what triggered JP was that at the top of the stairs, Tristan had called him like a drunken bitch. And now the 15 year old JP does have a past with drinking a lot of alcohol, which also I think is another strong indicator of this household being, uh, I think child endangerment that the two parents are charged with is putting it very lightly. The environment that they created for this 15 year old boy kind of bred what he turned into and he drank a lot and one day JP brought alcohol to school and he was showing everybody because you know he thought he was cool with alcohol and Tristan was actually the one that told the teacher that JP had alcohol 
And that's what the two boys had gotten into a fight about in school. Okay. Yeah. So I think that Jay, that I'm sorry. I think that Tristan calling him that triggered JP. And when he did that, that's when he stabbed him at the top of the stairs. He said he stabbed him once, then he fell and then he stabbed him a second time and then he fell down the stairs. Then he said he took the boy throughout the house and brought him into the garage where he laid him for a, a good amount of time. And, you know, it's it's hard. Like, watching that video of J.P. Remsen kind of walking through the crime scene, no emotion, no empathy. He doesn't feel bad for what he did. He There's no remorse. And he kind of talks about it like it was just, you know, he was explaining his day. And I think that, you know, he's still not telling the police the whole story. But this is something that didn't phase him. And even watching him on video, it's kind of scary because you're like, this is a grown man. That's what he looks like. But he's only a 15-year-old boy that has a very troubled life. That's actually sad. I mean, it's sad. I mean, it it's sad that things like this come together because you have mm-hmm. the one kid who's the victim here and it's horrible. And then you also have, you know... The person that stabbed him, he's 15 years old. He's had what looks to be no guidance. He is in a situation where it breeds behavior like that. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate. And after he said he dragged the body into the garage, he said from there he took Tristan into his backyard where he hid him in the shrubs. He then, in broad daylight, put his body in a manhole behind his garage so like that manhole that's behind their backyard they put he put the body in so this there's a lot of questions here there was so much blood in that garage so some police theorize that he did attempt to dismember Tristan's body They could not find any evidence or um, any materials within the garage that he could have used to to do a dismemberment because of the condition his bones were found in. It couldn't even be determined by his bones because of all the corrosion that took place. But they did find like a handsaw and there was blood on the handsaw. But when it was tested, this is going to be like really I don't want to even say these words. It was found to be um, like animal blood from a cat. You know, it's interesting. Um, it it almost it's almost as if he's a budding serial. He's killer. He's a budding serial killer, and he's been caught only after one victim. Yeah, and it's the, I mean, think about the to just do that in broad daylight. Whether it's stupidity or confidence or a mixture of both, I mean, to do that is crazy. But even to think that either he threw the body, like the body hit with force and maybe the jawbone just broke. We still don't have answers as to how that jawbone got on that ledge, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it. Everything points to him being a, like a budding serial killer. Yeah, like you said, it's it's actually scary. At 15. At 15. Now, there are still a few questions that we have. 
did his parents know? I mean, there's all of this blood all over the house. Why wasn't it even cleaned up? Like, I'm sorry, if I had blood in my house, I would clean it up. I think that that's one of the biggest mysteries here, is that how did they not know what was going on? Well, the police kind of did want to also hold the parents responsible for what took place. So they're going to ask John and Susan, did you know that your son killed Tristan Jensen? There's blood all over your home. John, his father, is going to take a polygraph test and he passes it, saying that he had no idea about what happened. But dude, how blind are you? There's blood all over your house. There's a massive pool of blood in your like explosive lair. You know, (laughs) how did you not see this? And then Susan, his mother, she refused to take a polygraph test, which I think is very telling. And she also said, well, I mean, I know people don't take polygraph tests for many reasons. It's not admissible in court. You don't want the police to, like, have this idea of you. It's not always right. But she didn't want to take it because she knew what happened. She said that her son, JP, had called her and said that their two dogs had gotten into a fight and that there was blood all over the house. So that's why I brought up the thing of, like, cleaning it up. Like, even if you thought that was, like, if if this is true and Susan thinks, okay, my dog's got into a fight, there's blood on the house. First, it's weird that your dog doesn't have a wound anywhere. And second, clean it up. Lady, there's blood all over your house. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. But it is the 21st century. I mean, the father could clean it up too. It's very strange. The fact that no one did. That's the thing. It's not even about that. No one cleaned the blood. No one cleaned up anything. How can anyone walk in that house? Think about all the walking we do in our small house. Yeah. You're going to tell me that you wouldn't see that and and be like, what the hell is this? Ask a question. Be like, hey, I don't know, for lack of a a kid that we don't have, Tommy, uh, what's going on? Uh, Why is there blood on the floor? Like, there are these questions here. I mean, I'm not saying these people really cared about animals, um, see the handsaw evidence, but... um, there was blood all over their house, enough blood to take your dog to the vet if they did get into a fight like that. It's it's very strange. There's no way they didn't know that their son did something to that boy. You know, could it be that they were just afraid of him? We talk about him being a like a big kid. Yeah. Like he's 15, but like he's six foot 250. Or whatever you said he was. I, I said 250. 270. 270. Like, he's a big guy. I know, but all of the other evidence kind of points to the father being the dominant figure of the house. Only because of the automatic rifles that he owns. He's the one that has all of the explosives in the garage. Um, that that was kind of more of his personality. So, like, they were no shrinking violets, these two. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't know about the mother's personality because they really didn't speak of on that. Well, then if they weren't afraid of their own son, then they had I don't somewhat... think they cared. I mean, this boy is drinking. I mean, he's basically an alcoholic at the age of 15, which is interesting because when you look at um, other serial killers, like Jeffrey Dahmer also was 
an alcoholic during his high school years. Yeah. It, and it's, same yeah. thing of like torturing animals. I think he was on the road to becoming a serial killer. And he was stopped. Yeah. I just I just think that there would need to be some, some sort of accountability um, for the parents. No, I completely agree. And unfortunately, the, the parents were never charged with accessory after the fact. Wow. And all of the evidence corroborated the story that JP was telling the police. And it matched the blood patterns. Let all except that large pattern on the floor of the garage. And this is, again, where the police may have thought, you know, he might have done more to Tristan's body. But these are things that we're never going to know because the way the body was found, we'll never know what happened to that body, unfortunately. Um, We'll never know what truly happened to Tristan, which is sad. And I hope that his death was not drawn out and painful because we don't know. I mean, can we really take this boy's word? It looks like there was some type of torture that happened in that garage, whether it was before or after he died, that we don't know. Um, Because all we found were his bones. And even his bones were corroded to the fact where it was hard to tell whether or not, like, oh, was he stabbed in the chest? Was there a nick on a bone? We We couldn't even tell that because it was put in a sewer system. Now, there was some interesting evidence that was found that leads to police thinking that there was a dismemberment and that's the fact that Tristan Jensen had been stripped no clothes were found in the sewer with his body they were found in JP's yard he had tried to burn them a pair of pants a shirt and a belt that's what he tried to burn and um, his shoes Tristan's shoes were found in JP's room okay The prosecutor chose to charge J.P. Remsen with first-degree murder. They believe this was all planned and why J.P. had even invited Tristan over to his house in the first place. They believe that J.P. had predatory behavior and would, if he had the chance, offend again. This was evident in the way that he spoke about killing his classmate. The trial was a bench one, heard only by a superior court judge. Both sides did not think they would fare well with a jury, and I guess we'll never know how that would have turned out. Um, The prosecution thought, like, okay, after seeing that tape and how cold-hearted he was, like, going through the crime, that's an that Like, they're going to say, oh, my God, this boy did this. The defense was worried about that tape because they were nervous what it was going to look like to a jury because he seemed so cold-hearted in the tape. But the prosecution was worried about his age and the other factors of his home life playing a role in the jury, maybe sympathizing with him. So that's why they both decided to just do a bench trial. The trial lasted a total of six days in which the prosecution explained the murder and played the tape of JP acting out the crime. The motive they explained through classmates and school records was that JP had been jealous and angry of Tristan. JP liked the same girl who was only interested in Tristan. And the one day that JP came to school with alcohol and showed it to the girl, the girl had actually told Tristan and Tristan was the one who had reported him to his teachers. 
And that got JP in a lot of trouble. And that was the why the two had the altercation in school after JP came back after being suspended. Well, there's your motive. Yeah. So on April 26, 2000, J.P. Remsen was found guilty of second-degree murder. The judge didn't think it was premeditated. He believed that it had taken place. It was second-degree. So he was sentenced to 15 years to life, but would be eligible for parole in seven years. That's kind of crazy, right? I think that that is just very the same of every serial killer that we've ever seen, right? How many of these men have been put in jail and then released or arrested for other things and then released after only a few years? I mean, it's it's sad. It's like this boy needs help. Yeah. So seven years parole. That meant if he behaved well in detention center because he was a minor and then once he turned 18 and then he went to prison... He would be out by the age of 24 in 2007. That is insane. Well, he might have been if in October of 2006, one year before he might have been paroled, he and another inmate had not assaulted a third inmate. While the other inmate punched the victim, JP repeatedly stabbed the victim with an eight inch long shank. Lethal force had to be used to stop the attack. Afterward, the victim recovered, but had been stabbed in his chest, back, shoulders, and leg. Oh my god, that is pretty brutal. Yes. He received a 10-year consecutive sentence for that. So that means that he would not be eligible for parole in one year. And then, in 2015... Two inmate-made syringes were found in J.P.'s legal mail, and he pled guilty in Kern County to possession of a controlled substance in jail. He was sentenced to four-year subsequent term. He is currently an inmate at Kern Valley State Prison in Delano, California. So he did have a chance to get out, but I think his um, his intentions and his proclivities kind of over in jail as well i mean yeah it it also like it just shows that there might not be a way to rehabilitate this guy well i mean i definitely don't think prison is a rehabilitative uh atmosphere atmosphere. center no 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 no, i know that but i'm saying like it shows that he has the capability of doing things again oh 100 for him to stab somebody with a shank like that in such a brutal manner, yeah. Um, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that if he was released, he, it would just be a matter of time before he does it again. And many people, many detectives that work this case, Tristan's family um, does feel the same way. Believe that J.P. Remsen could have been a serial killer, and if his dad didn't kill them all in an explosion in the middle of the night he would have gone on to continue offending. I mean, he had all of the warning signs of a serial killer. We're also lucky that he didn't bring a weapon to to the school. Uh, yeah. 
Think about that. This guy had TNT and automatic weapons that he could have brought to to high school. It's it's very like I'm surprised he didn't do that too. It's a scary situation. Yeah. Oh, and just to like tie up some loose ends, his father back in 2000 was sentenced to two and a half years in prison for the explosives and weapons in his home. And his mother received a three year probation for the same offenses. Wow. Okay. Um, I just, this case is crazy. I feel so horrible for Tristan Jensen and his family and what that poor boy had to go through. And I, but I am so glad that they were able to stop him. Look at how active he was in the investigation. He was abusing animals, torturing animals. He was obsessed with explosives. He was drinking all the time. He was known as this bully. I mean, this kid. I mean, it's textbook definition. It actually is. So I am just, you know, grateful that the good that the good police work of the Redlands Police Department were able to stop him before, you know, he could have hurt more people. He could have. I mean, I think that there's no question. I don't think in anybody's mind, you know, this kid could have killed more people and grown up to be even worse and more brutal. Yeah. So, you know what? Unfortunately, a life had to be lost, but at least he's caught and he's off the street. Yeah. Because someone like that's just, like, dangerous. Oh, and, his, <laughs> and his size, too. Like, that's scary. All right. So what do you, did you like that one? I did, even though I was 0 for 2. No, you did really good. You, <laughs> I'm 0 for 2. You put the bookmarks up, the red mo- the, the red, red flag, sorry. Okay, red you flags. put them up at the right time. Yeah. I'm proud of you. No, it makes sense. That's still one thing we don't know. How did that jawbone get on the ledge? Yeah, I like I said, the reason why I was thinking that was just because like if you had some sort of explosion, obviously things are going to go places. No, but it's it's yeah. like, could he have... We don't know what he did to the poor boy's body. Yeah, so, so we don't know, but... Yeah. All right. So before we go, I do want to say a big thank you to all of our new supporters on Patreon. So there's actually a long list. This is exciting. Again, if I pronounce your name wrong, please, please, please send me a message and I will repronounce it. I'll have a redemption. So we just want to say thank you to Chelsea Watson, Lynn McDonald. Amy Bergan, Andrea Illy, Toya, Jill Perrin, Sarah Bishop, Andrea Danielson, Shay, Stephanie LaRose, Christine O'Reilly, Philippa Brockman, Jessica Shannon, Marina Ledesma, Ruth Ann Gonzalez, Christina Luciak, Abigail Edgerton, David Lafevre, Rick Johnson, Manda Duda, Jim Berg, Alyssa Dokus, Rosalind Cox, Lydia Bradford, Jacqueline Mojica, Marnie, and Jason. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon, and we hope you are enjoying all of your benefits. Yes, thank you guys. All right, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye.